Um, just in terms of structure for this, uh, as we go through it, maybe just to help, it's helped me, I guess, just think about how to, how to go through this. Um, it's, a, it's a poem, it's written as a poem, and it's in four, four stanzas, so it's four sections to the poem. And I've given each of these sections just a title. They all begin with R, so you'll totally forget them after here. But um, <laughs> they, they all begin with R, uh, just to try and help focus our thoughts. And first, the first stanza I've entitled Rebellion and Rage. Um, in, in my version, which I'll read in a minute, it says Why do the nation rage? Um, we heard slightly different words from Drew last time, but there's this sense of kind of rage and rebellion. Then we move to look at God's response, and I've entitled that ridicule and response. And then we look at Christ's rule and his reckoning. And then finally we get to repentance and refuge. So that's the that's the structure of four bits um, to just to help us track through uh, the psalm this morning. And it's really is a it's a journey through hard things to one of ultimate hope for all of mankind is, is where we're headed. And one of the things I've found quite helpful in the last uh, over the last eighteen months, I've been I've been reading through the, the books of First and Second Samuel and First Kings, which is really about God establishing His His kingdom on earth through first of all Saul, which didn't work out too well. Then we had King David and then Solomon, and then it all went pretty pretty far south after that. Um, but all of First and Second Samuel and First Kings points towards a coming kingdom. A uh, kingdom that will last forever and will never be will never never be vanquished. And uh, it, it, in helping me through that, I've been uh, I've been helped by a guy called John Woodhouse, who's a pastor and a theologian. And, and I think what he he sums up, I think, what this chapter in, in Psalm two uh, really teaches, and he says this: the Bible teaches us that the state of the world is far worse than most people think. So it's worse than people think. But the Bible also teaches us that the hope of the world is more certain and wonderful than any of the world's pundits predict. So that's the context. Let's dive into the psalm. Psalm 2, I'll just read the first stanza. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 opens with this really noisy and chaotic confrontation. On the one side we've got this raging, seething mob, and it comprises all the nations and all the rulers and all the peoples of this world. And, and they're stirred up by these kings and rulers who seem to be sitting in the background taking counsel together, sitting around tables in smoke-filled rooms, plotting and scheming. And on the other side is God and his Messiah, the anointed, the Messiah, that's Jesus Christ. And the, look at what the mob are screaming at the end of, uh, in, in verse 3, it says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What ultimately are they screaming for? They're screaming for what we would probably call freedom. They don't want to be constrained by any laws that are imposed upon them by God or anybody else. And they don't want any limits, if you like, placed on the way in which they live their lives. They don't want their lives to be ruled by anybody else other than themselves. This is about self-rule and self-promotion and pride. 
And Psalm 2 is an interesting psalm because Psalm 2 is quoted in, in Acts in Acts chapter 4. And the and Psalm 2, this, this angry raging mob reached out to Shemdos, even though Psalm 2 was written two thousand a thousand years before Christ appeared on earth in flesh. In the weeks and in the days and in the hours leading up to ultimately Christ's crucifixion, this raging mob actually had that confrontation one-on-one with Jesus Christ. If you remember in the Gospels, the, the plotting and scheming of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the rulers of the Jews at the time. And if you remember the raging mob, what were the raging mob screaming for? They were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him. This raging mob wanted nothing to do with Christ. And it's interesting when Pilate in Matthew, Mark, and Luke asks the mob, Why do you want to crucify him? He doesn't actually get an answer. All they do is scream louder and louder and louder. And the clamor becomes even more to the point where Pilate feels he doesn't have any other option but to go ahead and condemn Christ to death. And the crowds are like that just today. You know, the crowds, the, the, the Twitter mobs, if you were to ask them and confront them and challenge them about why they're doing it, they probably wouldn't be able to give you an answer. they just come along, with the, come along with the flow. But it's interesting, Pilate also asked the same question of the chief priests and, their, and the scribes in a context away from the manic crowd. And you get an answer in Luke uh, chapter 23 and verse 2. This is how they answer Pilate when they're asked this very same question. This is what they say. We find this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. What they really were against in Christ was Christ's authority and Christ's rule over them. It's a question of kingship. It's a question of who's in charge. Who wants to be in charge? Who is Lord? Is it Caesar? Or is it Christ the Lord? Whose laws do you want to follow? Is it man's laws or God's laws? And here we are in 2022, 2,000 years later, 3,000 years after the Sanjur. And the rulers and the crowds and the mobs and the nations are still raging. They're still rebelling against God and against his anointed. They're wanting to do away with what they see as cords that bind, the, the rule of law that God has imposed on his creation, a law that's actually perfect and for our good. And they want to be free of those things, thinking that they can do it a better way themselves. Now, if you just think about the, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments essentially summarize all of God's laws. So just like God created the universe with laws that dictate how the planets revolve around the sun, God's law, his moral law, has exactly the same objectivity to it and certainty and solidity. And it's a way in which God has designed the world to, to function and function in the right way. I'll just, I'll just read through a few of the Ten Commandments from Exodus, Exodus uh, chapter 20. The first three really deal with our relationship with God. 
they're often summarized as, the Ten Commandments are summarized as love God and love others as you love yourself. But what does that love look like? And in Exodus 20 verse 3 it says, you shall have no other gods before me. God is the creator, God is the only one that is worthy of our worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Our relationship with God is primary. We are created, He's creator. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, that's about our relationship with our work. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. God has established families, and if you look at all of the attacks that are happening in the world at the minute, the family is at the center of that being destroyed. You shall not murder from pre-born babies in the womb all the way through to the end of life, whether it's abortion or euthanasia or everything in between, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. God is, as we've been here for the last three weeks, God is interested in how we behave sexually. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not comment. All of these laws, and those laws weren't done away with from Christ, came to earth. Christ and uh, Jesus, when he wrote the Sermon on the Mount, takes those laws and actually explodes and expands them to give a much deeper and richer meaning of what they actually are getting at. It's not so much about our outward behavior, it's what's going on in our heart that's really important. So back to Psalm 2 verse 1. Psalm is observing all this rage and all of this uh, waving of arms and shouting and screaming. And the first question he asks is, is why? Why are you raging? All of this, why do, why do the nation rage and the people's plot in vain? This is completely pointless. What's the point is essentially what he's asking. This, this rebellion and rage is just futile. So as we move on, to the second stanza, we find out why he thinks it's futile, and I've called this ridicule and response. So if we, I'm going to read the second stanza, basically at verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Is that what you expect God will do? If you're honest with yourself, is that, isn't that a shocking thing to hear that God is laughing? And holding them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's reaction to this is he, he finds the whole thing ridiculous, essentially. He finds the whole thing, this, the, all these creatures that he's, that he's made on planet Earth. All shaking and waving their fists, thinking that they can throw off these bonds that would serve to constrain them. And, uh, and they're a laughing stock. And, and it's a bit like, you know, this is a bit like an ant who's standing on the ground, seeing a big approaching army coming towards them with all the boots stamping on the ground, and, they, and 
and they are trying to scream and wear his legs and arms and say, stop, stop, stop. It's got no chance. It's going to be squashed. There are some things, there are some things that you just cannot overcome, and God's law is one of those things. And it's foolish for us all to think that we can throw off God's law and come up with a better way to live. And self-rule just doesn't work. And if you think about it, if you, if you were to get rid of all the laws that we, we have in society to govern our lives, what would be the end result of that? Even if, you know, if today we decided to scrap the highway code and just let anybody do whatever they like in their rooms, there would absolutely be chaos and carnage everywhere. Laws are there to provide some means of creating order that we can live our lives and make sense of our lives. And that's exactly the same with God's moral law. And it's interesting, if you think about the Ten Commandments, and if you think about how each of those commandments are being reversed or done away with in our, in our day. So, one of the things, you know, uh, the, the Third Commandment is all about blasphemy, it's all about taking the Lord's name in vain. And, and that may seem like a very old-fashioned and kind of irrelevant idea in our day. But if you think about it, if you think about what's going on in our culture today, we have blasphemy laws that are operating in the culture and the world around us in society. So how do you get cancelled today? How do you get silenced today? If you're the person who's prepared to put your head above the parapet and question the narratives that are ongoing at the minute in the world, or the ideologies in the world, that's blasphemy in the world's eye. Just ask J.K. Rowling. So these laws are, they're, they cannot, they're fixed and firm, and, and you cannot do away with them, irrespective of whether you relate to or not. It's foolish to think we can throw them off. But it's not just a, it's not just a ridiculous specular in God's eyes, it's also a deadly serious business. And in verse 5, we see that uh, God speaks, God speaks to them in his wrath, and terrifies them in his fury. Mankind's rebellion and rage ignites God's terrifying wrath and his anger because the created cannot rise up in rebellion against the creator without incurring some form of consequence to that. And every single one of us at some point or other has broken God's law. We are, we've all sinned. We've all, gone, we've all tried to go our own way, as the Bible says. And if you're sitting there thinking that you maybe haven't done that, that you're neutral in this fight, that's not the case either, because even just denying God's existence puts you on the, op the opposite side too. And essentially there are no neutral spectators in this war, in this scene that we've got before us in Psalm, uh, in Psalm 2. Either we've decided to find that place of refuge in Christ, or on the battlefield, we're trying to shoot missiles at you can't have any it's, it's one of those two things. What's so terrifying that about, um, about God's response? He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It's almost like there's ripples or weirs of fear running through the crowds. It's the fact that God speaks that is terrifying. If you think about the world around us, the world around us, the universe, the stars, everything that was created, 
was created through God's word, his spoken word. When God speaks, stuff happens. And it always brings about a change. In the beginning, God spoke and the universe was created out of nothing. God spoke to Moses from a burning bush. The next thing that happened was the, the nation of Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt. God spoke to Saul and ripped the kingdom away from him and gave it to David. God spoke to Solomon and the kingdom was divided in two. So we really need to pay attention when God speaks. And this is what he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And you might think, what's so terrifying about that? What's so terrifying about God pointing to the fact that he's got a king sitting in Zion on his holy hill? And David here is looking forward to um, a promise that was given to him and the fulfillment of that promise. This is King David. Back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, there's a, there's a reiteration of God's promise and covenant with David and, and about his kingdom being established forever. And, and God promises David, he says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what God is doing by putting a king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem is fulfilling that promise to David. And this is about the establishment of a kingdom that will surpass all other kingdoms. And we've been singing about it as being unshakable. It's not going to... No, no other nation, no other, no other regime is going to overcome that kingdom, ultimately. It's going to last forever. That's what's so terrifying. Man has 70, 80 years on earth, and then he's gone, just like a vapor. But God's kingdom has been established forever. And no earthly kingdom can last forever. There's no longer a Babylonian empire. There's no longer an Assyrian empire. The Roman empire is no longer. Britain did finally leave the European Union. Borders are continually being redrawn around the world today. Just look at the conflicts in Ukraine and, and Russia. All of these man-made established kingdoms and nations and empires essentially will at some point fail. And I think that's almost that seems to be what's going on in our Western civilization even now. A lot of the things that we've held on to that, that have been the bedrock, the foundation, of, of the Western civilization, which has come from Christian roots, is being a done away with, and that's creating all sorts of turmoil and, uh, around us. So that's what's so terrifying to these rulers who want to set themselves up to establish themselves forever. They can't do it. And what does this mean for us? What does this mean? What does this uh, reign and rule of Christ mean for the nations? Thursday, a rule and reckoning. The attention now focuses away from the crowd, away from God's response, and focuses now on Christ Himself, Jesus Christ the King. And this is what it says I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of your earth of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Who is this king? The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This phrase, You are my son, today I have begotten you, is quoted three times in the New Testament, and every single one of those is with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king. Jesus, the Son of God, the very Son of God, is Christ the King. Hebrews 1, verses 3 to 5, provides us with a picture of Christ's coronation. So after Christ was risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. It was a coronation, a coming home of the King. And this is what it says about this King. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This king was a king who became flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified, who was raised from the dead, and 2,000 years ago ascended back into heaven to take his place at the right hand of God. And today, Christ is living, and today he is ruling, and he is reigning over his, over his entire kingdom. And that has implications for all of us in this room. If you look at verses, uh, if you look at verse, verse 8, it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. In the last 2,000 years, since Christ ascended back to heaven, think about the explosive growth of the Christian church, of his kingdom spreading from those 12 disciples in Jerusalem outwards and covering majority of the world today. And despite what it might look like on our new, you know, on the news feeds and on Twitter timelines and all the rest of it, it may not look like Christ is ruling and his kingdom is coming, but it is. His moral law still stands. He's in charge. And I was looking at some statistics recently. Uh, China back in nineteen forty nine had just under one million Christians. 1949, just under one million Christians. As of 2020, there was an estimated 100 million Christians in China. Over the last 10 years, the, the, the church has been growing at 7% per year, year over year. And that means by the year 2030, there could be 250 million Christians, professing Christians, in China. And this is the, one of the most oppressive regimes in the world um, that, that is openly, openly persecutes Christians. That's quite astounding. Mean, that's a quarter of the population of China and within the next eight years could actually be Christian. Just think of the ramifications of that could have in another 20 years beyond that. Christ's kingdom is coming. We may not see it, it may not be visible, but it is coming, he is reigning. And ultimately one day, all of the nations, all of the nations will be his possession. Not just China, not just the UK, but all of the nations. God is ultimately bringing all things under the rule and reign of Christ. The, the rage 
and the rebellion is being quelled as people surrender their lives to him and in order we can move forward today when order will be restored. There's a warning though uh, in verse 9. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces of the potter's vessel. For those who have been given the opportunity, and we all are given the opportunity to come to know Christ as our Savior, to surrender, to lay down our weapons. For those that don't do that, there will ultimately be a reckoning. And that reckoning we find in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If you fast forward in time to uh, Revelation 19, I'll just read a few verses from Revelation 19. 19 verses 11 to 16. And this is talking about Christ's return. And it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold the white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine men, white and pure, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ultimately, every single one of us will stand and give an account to this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And for those that continue to rebel, continue to rage against Christ and against his rule and oppose his rule, it says that they'll be smashed like the pieces, like a jar of pottery being smashed on the kitchen floor. So the state of the world is far worse than most people think. And opposing the rule of Christ is a perilous past thing. So is there any hope? And yes, there is. If we come to the very final stanza, repentance and refuge. The hope of the world is more certain and wonderful than any of the world's pundits predict. This is what it says. Now therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If I was to paraphrase this, these verses, um, I would say something like this. Here's the deal. You've seen who you're up against, and you have absolutely no chance of winning this war. So do the sensible thing, please, and surrender. Receive the blessing and the protection of the King of Kings before it's too late, or suffer inevitable and terrifying consequences. It's your choice. That's essentially the choice that every one of us has to make. And the hope here is that Christ, and as King of Kings, he's a gentle and he's a gracious King. He offers his hand to bring us in. He, um, 
He's merciful and he's generous and he doesn't punish those who surrender to him. This isn't like, you know, when you look at some of the kind of you know, war films or, or some of the, the great conquests of history where the people who end up getting surrendered, the troops that end up getting defeated in battle are prayed on the streets or sent to prison camps. This is not what our king does for us. What our king does for us is he takes us as, as enemies and he restores us to right relationship with him and he, and he calls us sons and daughters. We get accepted into his royal family. That's the king that we serve and he provides us with protection and security. He doesn't bear grudges for past wrongs because this same king on God's holy hill was the king who laid down his life on the cross for each and every one of us. He took, he took God's wrath, he took the punishment that we deserve on that tree and he offers that forgiveness, absolute forgiveness in, in his grace if we would just willingly surrender to him. He and he alone provides us with a safe refuge, a place of protection in the storm, not just the storm of life but the protection ultimately from God's wrath at the end of time. I just want to finish with a couple of encouragements if you're a Christian this morning. Um, I think the world, as we experience it, and you know, whatever area of life you're walking in, whether it's in, in the workplace, uh, whether it's in health service, whether it's in public institutions, whatever, this Scotland of 2022 is not governed by this book anymore. Scotland in 2022 is being governed by ideologies that have replaced Judeo-Christian values essentially. We're living in what you could call a post-Christian world. We have decided as a society to get away with transcendence. With, we put God out of the picture, we put his word out of the picture, and we're basically trying to make it up as we go along. And that will never work out well. And that means, I don't know if, about you, but I've certainly felt that in, in years gone by, it's been very easy to live as a Christian uh, and not have to have too much grief or not coming up against too many confrontations with stuff in the workplace or whatever. That's becoming even more and more difficult for people and Christians in Scotland in 2022 are having to make tough decisions about whether they can actually remain employed given some of the things that are being pushed upon them. Values that they cannot hold, values that are anti-Christian, values that go against God's word and God's law. So where's the encouragement? I guess my encouragement would be to reflect on the truths of Psalm 2. You know, often the world will tell us that you're on the wrong side of history. But you actually look at the arc of history and the trajectory of history from the very beginning to its very end. The only people that will be on the wrong side of history at the very end have just been read are those who refuse to surrender to Christ's rule and reign. Ultimately, he will prevail. Ultimately, his kingdom will prevail. And that's the side of history that I want to be on. Christ cannot be overthrown. His kingdom will prevail when all our kingdoms are lying in ruins. So with that, 
I would encourage you to rejoice, but also rejoice with trembling, as I say, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I think sometimes we, we underestimate just the awesomeness and the power and the authority that Christ actually has. And we owe him reverence. It, it's by, you know, I only stand here preaching this morning because of his grace has been extended to me. It's nothing that I've done at all. So that's something to rejoice in, in the shrewd sort of hope that all will be well in the end. And tremble before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when you realize just the enormity of his power. And then the final encouragement, the very last verse, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus Christ is a good and gracious King. There is no greater place of security, despite what life might throw at us. And when the difficulties and the persecution come, we won't be able to see ourselves or find security in anything outside of Christ. However, if we do choose to submit to him, if we do choose to surrender to him, he will protect us. And we will find blessing in that, happiness and joy and peace. We'll still have to wrestle with our sinful nature, that sinful nature that wants to throw off God's law, that says, well, I don't want anything to do with that. That just feels too difficult and too constraining. But actually, the irony is that in trying to do away with that law, we end up becoming slaves. We become slaves to sin. We become slaves to something else. And it's actually when we, when we surrender and lay down our lives to Christ's Lordship and His rule of our lives, that's the place of liberty and freedom because that's the place that God designed us to live in. And when we, when we submit ourselves to God and His laws, we don't have to make it up for ourselves. We don't have to think about these things. It's clear. We just have to read His Word. We just have to trust Him and follow Him and surrender to His Lordship in, in our lives. So there we have it. Psalm 2, uh, rebellion and rage, ridicule and response, rule and reckoning, repentance and refuge. The psalm opens in chaos, it opens in rage, why the nation's rage and the people's point of being, and it ends in order and a place of safety. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. It opens in chaos, it ends in order, and it's all in and through Christ himself. Our King. So where are you this morning? Are you on the battlefield, throwing rocks and stones and waving your fists at God? Or have you found that place of refuge and comfort and security in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ?